Amen. Well, that's our prayer tonight. We do want to see you. We long for the day when we will see you face to face. We thank you, Lord, that we can see you, Lord, now in your word and how you reveal so clearly to us who you are, how much you love us, your divine plan for us. We pray right now, Lord, as we go to the time of of being in your word, that your Holy Spirit would minister to every heart that's here. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to have you here. Good to see you. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 30, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament on Wednesday. If it's your first time here, God bless you. It's great to have you here. Hope you feel welcome. If you've been coming here for a long time, I still hope you feel welcome. All right. Love you guys anyway, right? Amen? All right. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually take, and as you know I do every week, I like to really get, catch us up to speed, and I really feel led to, tonight to just take a few moments and again, just talk about how perfectly put together God's Word is. And as we get to Numbers chapter 30, the title of the message tonight is going to be, Let Your Yes Be Yes and Your No Be No. God desires that we be men and, men and women who speak the truth, and men and women who are faithful to what we say we are going to do. Our God is faithful, amen? And when He says He's going to do something, He always does it. And that's part of what I want to talk about just for a few moments, because what we've seen so far in the Old Testament is just, again, how God's plan is so perfect, how He had a plan for His people, how men fell into rebellion in Genesis, And then you get to Exodus, and as you get there, you begin to see Jesus on every single page. Certainly we see Him in Genesis, but as we get to Exodus, we begin to see the Lord on every page. And we saw how God had a heart for Israel. That even though there were people who were in rebellion against God, even though they had purposely chosen to walk away from Him, He continued to have a love for them. He delivered them out of bondage in Egypt, and then He began to give them things that were to remind them and to keep their eyes focused on Him. And if you begin even looking at the construction of the tabernacle itself, remember those of you who were here when we went through Exodus, that each of the furnishings was a clear picture of Jesus. From the metals that were used, bronze is a picture of, who remembers? Judgment. And gold is a picture of deity. And we know that the altar was made of bronze because the bronze altar is a picture of the cross. We know the laver was, was made of bronze, a picture of the place where the, the priest, after they sacrificed the animals, would go and cleanse themselves. But then when you got inside the tabernacle, all the furnishings were made out of gold because each one of them pointed to Jesus. Whether it was a table of showbread because Jesus is the bread of life, or it was the golden lampstand because Jesus is the light of the world, or it was the altar of incense because Jesus is the one that intercedes on our behalf daily, or it's the Ark of the Covenant because, again, A real clear picture of several things, most specifically in my heart, the tomb. Because when you looked at the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, that's where the the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. And on that Day of Atonement, when they sprinkled the blood seven times, the number of perfection, what they saw was they saw a mercy seat that was over and covering the law, the Ten Commandments. The law reveals our sin, but it's only God's mercy that can save us. Because the law reveals our need for a Savior. But when you looked at the ark, what you saw was cherubim on each end of the ark. And in the middle of the ark, you saw a flat surface where the blood had been sprinkled. And you know that on early Sunday morning, when Jesus rose from the dead, when they got to the tomb, they looked in, and what did they see? They saw angels at, each, at the head and at the foot, just like in the ark. 
and they saw the blood that, that was stained from the, the linen that was still there in its place, and again, a clear picture of the tomb. We then got to Leviticus, and in Leviticus, again, we see Jesus on every page, because the sacrificial system, every bit of it, points to the Savior. It's Jesus, 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 and you've got to love it. Each one of the items, interestingly enough, one thing I wanted to point out too, if you weren't here, the materials in the tabernacle, this just blows my mind, all of it pointing to Jesus. Because what you saw in the tabernacle itself were four colors in the, in the uh, veil that went in, and also the only place you could enter into the tabernacle, and the four colors were purple, blue, red, and white. And we've talked about this, that purple is a picture of royalty. Who's the king of kings? Jesus. The blue is a picture of the heavenlies or his deity, and they were angels woven inside of this, of this beautiful tapestry. Then there was scarlet or, or red, which is the blood of Christ, and then fine white linen. And the only way you could get into the tabernacle was through this fine tapestry. The only way you could enter in. And, and you know what? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so as you look at the tabernacle itself again, a picture of our Savior. The actual curtains that they use in the tabernacle. Again, if you haven't been here, they used several curtains that they, they, they put posts up and the curtains went over the top of them. And the bottom curtain was this beautiful tapestry that had these multiple colors in it. And the only way you could see it was from the inside. The priest saw it, but covering it was goat's hair that was black. And we talked about that was a picture of sin. But then covering the goat's hair were ram skins dyed red. Remember the ram, it says God provided for himself or provided himself a sacrifice, Abraham and Isaac. And then on top of that were badger skins that were really kind of not very attractive. And we talked about how that's a picture of Jesus who it says that there was nothing in Him that we should behold Him or we should be attracted to Him physically. Then you get to Leviticus, as I said a moment ago, and every sacrifice, whether it be the lambs that were slain, who's the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? It's Jesus. If it's the bull or the oxen, as we talked about last week, the bull or the oxen is a beast of burden, and the Bible says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We also saw that some of the other animals, again, whether it be the goat, the scapegoat, each one of them pointing to Christ. Now we get to Numbers, and as we get to Numbers, what, yet again, we see God's divine order. And I want you to remember this, that God is a God of order and a God of decency. God is not out of control. Amen? God's never trying to figure out what to do next. God already knows. And yet you go some places or you talk to some people who are, quote, followers of Christ and they act like God needs our help or God, you know, God's, God's all confused right now. And, and you go into their churches and it sure looks like God's confused sometimes. Amen? The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. And you know what? God is alive and well, and the gifts are alive and well, but they're done decently and in order. And when you get to Numbers, what we saw is that God had a divine plan for the children of Israel, and the first thing He did was He numbered them. That's why it's called the book of Numbers. Again, if you've been here, it's, not a, it's a bad rap, because they number the people twice. And really it should be called In the Wilderness would be a good name for the book. But they number the children of Israel and there's 603,550 men over the age of 20 as they get ready to leave Mount Sinai and they're headed to the land of promise. Now out of that 603,550 men, how many of them are going to enter in? Two. Because of the rebellion of the people. He encamped them in the cross. He gave them the divine instructions on how they were to camp. And when they set up the tabernacle, or when they set up the, the camp itself, with the tabernacle in the center, 
They didn't have a full concept of what they were doing, but God's divine order and divine plan, as they camped, they were encamped in a perfect cross. And as they headed in this perfect cross to the land of promise, the Shekinah glory of God was leading them every step of the way. Every morning when they woke up, the first thing they had to do was look up and see if the cloud was there, or the pillar of fire was there, because it would move, and when it moved, they all had to gather up their stuff and move with it. And that's a great example for us that the first thing we ought to do in the morning is look up. Amen? Begin your day seeking God's face. Begin your day spending time in His Word. Begin your day praying and saying, Lord, You lead, You guide, You direct. I'm going to follow You, Lord. Direct my every single path. And so we saw then that, again, as they began to march, they began to murmur, they began to mock God, and sadly, because of that, because of their murmuring, their complaining, their desire to go back to Egypt, their short-term memory, God said, you're not going to enter into the land of promise. You know, it's amazing to me that they wanted to go back to Egypt. After 400 years of bondage, they said, let's go back to Egypt. There's leeks and onions back there. We don't like this manna stuff, and send us back. And they remembered the leeks and onions, and they forgot the beatings. And it's kind of how our life is when we look back on the world again. We look back at our old life, B.C., you know, before Christ, right? Sometimes we look back and Satan will remind us, oh, wasn't that great we used to go out and party? Wasn't that fun we used to... You remember the party and you forget the puking in the gutter the next day, you know what I mean? That's what Satan does. He makes you try to remember sin with great fondness. But what happened was because of the rebellion, they would not enter into the land of promise. And just a few weeks ago, we saw that even Moses would not enter in because Moses got angry and he smote the rock. And so the Lord then said, Moses, you're not going to enter in either. And we saw his shepherd's heart as he asked God to raise up another shepherd, another you know, leader to shepherd them in to the promised land. And he raised up a man by the name of Joshua. We've talked about this again. And I know I'm repetitive, but I'm, an old, I'm a youth pastor by, you know, for 15 years, so you get repetition because that's how you learn. And the reality is that Moses couldn't take them in because Moses is a picture of the law and Joshua's name could also be transliterated Jesus, because the law can't take you into the land of promise, only Jesus can. And we see that clear picture with Moses and with Joshua. So now we, we've got this new generation. And this new generation now is encamped. They've come right back full circle. That 11-day journey turned into a 40-year death march. 603,548 men over the age of 20 are dead along with a total of a couple million people all together. And now this younger generation is going to the land of promise, and God begins to prepare them as they're entering in. And the first thing that He does is He brings them up against the very same foe that their parents had wimped out against, the Canaanites. But this time they obeyed God and they fought Him. Remember that when the first generation was there, they said, oh, there's giants in the land, we can't defeat them. And as Christians, I think sometimes we give the enemy too much credit. We do have a spiritual battle that we battle every day, but Satan is a defeated foe. Amen? And too often it's, oh, the devil, oh, you know what? He's defeated. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And you know, there are giants in the land. Our God's greater than all of that. And we need to just trust in him and have faith and move forward in what God wants us to do. We then saw that Balaam tried to curse them and God would not allow it. And then they sent harlotry into the camp. And if you remember, Phineas threw a spear 
through, the, through Zimri and Cosby. Remember that? They came down, they're in the tabernacle, and they were just like mocking God, and Phineas cleansed the tabernacle. A picture to us that we are not allowed sin to run rapid in our homes. And then we saw the numbering of that next generation and the raising up of Joshua. Now the last two chapters, 28 and 29, we saw the seven feasts. And we talked last week in depth about how each of those feasts is a picture both of something historically as well as something prophetically. And we talked about how each of those feasts was in remembrance of what God had delivered them from, but also pointed something to something that was yet to come in their case. Now we know as we looked at those feasts last week that four of them have already been fulfilled. Four of them were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. And the last three will be fulfilled at the rapture of the church, and then ultimately the second coming of Christ that takes place seven years later. The first four feasts were Passover. For them, they were looking back on their deliverance out of Egypt. When the angel of death passed over, only if they had the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over. Again, the the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross, the angel of death passed over. So they were looking back at their deliverance, but it pointed forward to the cross. We then saw right after that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a picture of their hasty departure, that they had to flee because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. As soon as Pharaoh said go, they went, and they went with great haste. And that's a picture of the tomb because they would not allow any leaven in their homes later. As they would look back, they would take all the leaven out. No leaven was allowed in their home anywhere. And as we know, our Savior was without leaven because leaven is a picture of sin. We then saw the Feast of first fruits, which for them was at harvest time, giving of their first fruits, and it was a picture of the resurrection. Again, the first fruits of the resurrection, as we saw last week. And then Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. 50 days after the cross, what happened? Pentecost. And what was Pentecost? For them, it was remembrance of the giving of the law, and going forward, it would be the day when the Holy Spirit was given. Again, repetitive, but some of you are new. Remember again that when the law was given, Moses came down. They were partying and reveling and and drunkenness and worshiping idols. And the ground opened up and how many people died? 3,000. And at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, how many people were saved? 3,000. It's not by chance that at Pentecost, the remembrance of the law, 3,000 died. And at Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 souls were saved. So the last three feasts that that pointed to the future was first the Feast of Trumpets. And we talked about this last week when the trumpet blows. What's that picture of? Rapture of the church. And uh, as your pastor, I hold to a, and I believe the Bible very clearly teaches, a pre-tribulational view. What does that mean? That means that the church will be raptured. There's going to be seven years of tribulation on the earth. There's going to be the beginning part. There's going to be some peace that takes place as the Antichrist rises to fame. And during that time, at the middle of which, he's going to reveal himself to be who he is, a thing called abomination of desolation. And he's going to go into the temple, present himself to be God. The people are going to realize they're duped. And there's going to be mayhem for three and a half years, unlike anything the world has ever seen. We also saw lastly the Day of Atonement, which is a picture of that time of tribulation, the atoning work of the Messiah, and finally the Feast of Tabernacles, which I believe points to the Millennial Kingdom. Now, all of this stuff is in the Old Testament, yet all of it has prophetic fulfillment in either 
long after that time or in the future that's yet to come. Now we come to Numbers chapter 30. And as we get there, we move from these annual feasts and these daily... He, gave, he said, I want you daily to, to have sacrifices and offerings. I want you to weekly have sacrifices and offerings. I want you to monthly have sacrifices and offerings. And then you're going to have these seven annual feasts. And the reason He gave them to them is because the children of Israel were real easy to get their eyes off of God. It was real easy for them. Now guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. Is it easy for us to take our eyes off of God? Yes, it is. And he said, I want you to have daily sacrifices so you remember me every morning and every night. I want you to have weekly sacrifices that are special and you have a Sabbath for me. I want you to have monthly sacrifices and annual feasts that, so that you will never stop putting your eyes on me. That's why it's important that we don't just read our Bible at church on Sunday and Wednesday. Because we need to spend more time with him than that. We need to open up the Bible on a daily basis. So we get to chapter 30, and this next generation, again, is about to enter into the land of promise. They have not yet. And God has more instruction for them. And this instruction we're going to look at today, is He's going to move from a, a call to faithfulness and sacrifice and worship to a call to being faithful in submission and in the words that they speak. Again, let your yes be yes. And let your no be no. God's going to call His people to be faithful in their promises and to be faithful in the oversight of those who God has given them care over. You know what? God has no doubt, everybody in this room, God has at one time in your life given you authority over others. And then He has also given those who are in authority over you. And God has called us to relate in a certain way. And we, talked, we saw this on Sunday. It's not by chance that Romans 13 happened to line up with Numbers 30. But in both cases, we see a picture of submission to authority. But we also see how, as the authority, we're to treat those who God has given us care over. But the first few verses, we're going to look first at God's command for us to be faithful to His Word. Are people faithful to their Word today? We have presidents, not the, not the current one, but... That we have presidents that have got up and just flat out lied under oath and whatever. Nobody cares. It's amazing. Their, their approval rating goes up. He's a good liar. His approval rating go up, right? And, and sadly, what has happened is we've become a nation where lying is no big deal. And making vows, whatever. And we're going to see God's ultimate plan for vows and for promises before Him. God desires that our yes be yes and our no be no, even if everybody else around us is a liar. Amen? And then we're going to look at a father's headship over his daughter, which is near and dear to my heart. My daughter's 16th birthday is today. They're having a party for her down at the, at the youth group tonight. My daughter is driving. That kills me. She's still my baby girl, and she's driving. Okay? We'll then talk about a husband's headship over his wife. And then we'll see that a woman who, in this case, did not have covering was bound by her own vows. And then lastly, we'll see the husband is accountable to fulfill the vows of his wife. So let's begin in Numbers 30. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. God's command to be faithful to the word that we speak. Then Moses spoke, verse 1, Numbers 30, to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. So Moses, again, and I love this, Moses has been told what? You're not going. Now, if I've been traveling for 40 years in the wilderness with 3 million whiners, and then I was told that I don't get to go into the land of promise, and some of them do, I'd have quit. How about you? I'm, I'm taking my staff and I'm going home, right? <laughs> right? 
But he doesn't do that. Praise God for Moses, that even though God said, you're not going in, he still had a love for the people. He still had a heart for God. He didn't allow his own circumstances or the fact that he had rebelled and there was consequences to his own sin to keep him from being faithful going forward and ministering to God's people. What a great example. Instead of being bitter against God, he remained faithful to God. And he calls in the the leaders of the tribes and he says, this is what God has commanded. Now I love this because he calls in the leaders and he shares with them that they might turn and be obedient as the spiritual leaders to go and minister truth to each of the tribes. Now this is a picture again, how God has called us, and I want to say first, you guys, to be the spiritual leaders in your home. God has called you to be the spiritual leader in your home, not your wife. Amen? That was weak. Has God called you to be the spiritual leader in your house, guys? Amen. All right. God has called you, and God has divinely purposed that you would be the spiritual headship in your home. And God has given you a, that, that unique gift. Now, are, are wives less than us? Absolutely not. We're, we're no greater than our wives. We just have a different calling than our wives. And we see here that he delivers it to the heads of the tribes, and then the heads of the tribes were to go back and to deliver it to everybody in their tribe. And again, that's a picture of what we ought to be doing as spiritual leaders in our home. He says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all the proceeds out of his mouth. Now the word their vow is a voluntary promise made to and before the Lord. An example was the Nazarite vow. You remember that? Who took the Nazarite vow? Samson. Okay? And when he took the Nazarite vow, it had several promises that came with it. A razor would never touch his head. He would never drink alcohol. And it was a vow that lasted for a certain length of time. But a vow is also, it's a statement, and and it's saying a promise before God, I promise you, Lord, that I'm going to do this. And God says, when you make a vow or you make a promise, that you are to follow through with that promise. You let your yes be yes, your no be no, and you'll be obedient to what I've called you to do. A vow is a promise to do a certain thing for the Lord or a promise to another before the Lord. When we get married, we have wedding what? Vows. Now, if we really meant that word, if we really meant it, when we got up and we said, I do, and we saw it as a vow before God, and we really believed it in our heart and we meant it, then we would not see the divorce rate that we see today. Because a vow is not a promise before God that I'm, this is for eternity. I mean, this is till I die. It's not for eternity, but it's till I die, till death do us part, as the marriage ceremony says. And I'm committed to this. And I'm not walking out, and I'm not leaving when it gets tough, because God said, and I'm, I'm making this commitment to you, Lord, and I'm making this commitment in front of all of these witnesses, then it's a vow. But sadly, what it has become, instead of a vow before God, which is a commitment for a lifetime, it's become a, I'll do the best I can, and if it doesn't work out, I'm out of here. That's why the divorce rate is so high, because we don't even understand what a vow is. You know, when I do a wedding, I explain what a vow is, because I don't think people understand what it is. Because a vow is a voluntary promise to the Lord, before the Lord, to another. It's saying before God, that's ultimately who you're promising. I promise you, Lord, I'm committed to this woman for the rest of my life. I promise you, Lord, I'm committed to this man for the rest of my life. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. By the way, guys, love is not a feeling. It's a choice. Amen? 
The butterflies are going to fade sometimes. Not in my marriage. I still have butterflies every day. But, you know, the reality is that butterflies are going to fade sometimes. And you choose, I choose to love my wife. No matter what. And in my house, divorce is not an option. It's not even in my vocabulary. Me and my wife till death do us part. That's it. She's stuck with me. That's it. I made a vow. You're stuck. Okay? And so this vow that he says, you take a vow. When you take a vow, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Can you imagine if we were all held to that? Man, we'd think a little different about stuff that came out of our mouth, wouldn't we? Oh, I better, I better think before I say that because I'm going to pay. And here's the reality. God wants us that when we make a vow or an oath to fulfill it even to our own harm. Even if it means to our own harm or to our own loss. Now, I remember when I, my kids were little, I had a desire that I would never, ever, ever, ever say I promise and not keep, keep my word. And I'll never forget one time I got really tested on it. Because my son Johnny, who's now 13, was five. And he was in kindergarten. And he had asked me at the beginning of the school year if I would come to bring Daddy to kindergarten day and tell him about my job. And I said, of course, son, I'll absolutely come to that. Well, I didn't know when it was. And then my boss came by one day and had told me that they had given me some market. I was selling Yellow Pages then. They'd give me some market and the book was closing in four days. And I had 40 accounts up in Arnold, if you know where that is. Angels camp, right? Way out there. So, of course, I'm like, oh, man, I, I got four days to get, there's no way I'm going to get them all. It's impossible. I don't even know how I'm going to get them all done, but I'm going to try. And then, of course, my son Johnny walks in and says, so, Daddy, day after tomorrow, you're coming to school with me, right? It's bring Daddy to, it's bring Daddy to, oh, wait a minute. I'm already in jail. At, I'm, Lord, help. And by God's grace, I got on the phone, called all the customers, and saw 40 people in two days. Stayed up all night, did all the paperwork, turned it all in, and pulled into the driveway to bring Daddy to, to school day, like 15 minutes for us supposed to be there, by God's grace. Because when you promise your kids, they don't understand when you break the promise. All they understand is, I'm not important. You told me you were coming, you didn't show up. May we be men and women of our word. May we be different than the world. When we say we're going to do something, let's do it and honor God with it. Amen? It's a great opportunity to be a testimony. You tell your boss you're going to come early to work, you come early to work. You tell your boss you're going to work, you do it. And do it as unto the Lord, even to your own harm. He says, let every word that proceeds out of your mouth, you be faithful to your word. And Matthew 5.37 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. As Christians, we are to be faithful to our promises. In Acts 23, it says, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There's a difference between a vow and an oath. A vow is a promise to do something, and an oath, an oath is a promise to, to abstain from something until something else occurs. They took an oath and said, We're not going to eat and drink until that guy's dead. Now, we know that they either starved to death or broke their oath, right? Because they said, we're going to kill Paul, and God said, uh, no, you're not, right? And so they, they either didn't eat for years and years and years, or they broke their oath, right? You can make all the oaths you want, but if you make an oath against God, you're in trouble. So God is faithful to His promises, and we see the difference between a vow and an oath. A vow is a promise before God to do exactly what comes out of your mouth. Lord, I promise. It's before you. I'm honoring you. When you promise your kids, you're making a promise before God. Amen? When you promise your boss, you're making a promise before God. You're promising your kids, but you're doing it before the Lord. 
So that's a vow. An oath is a promise or a decree to, to abstain from something. When we take an oath or when we take a vow, may we do it as unto the Lord and may we be faithful to fulfill it. It's interesting that it's been, many today say we should not take vows of any kind. And they quote verses to say it. But it's interesting that Jesus testified under oath in the book of Matthew. We've had some Christians say, well, I can't testify under oath. Or people that call themselves Christians saying they can't testify under oath. But Jesus did. And Jesus, our God the Father, actually, actually made vows and promises. That the word vow is used. So we do, can still make promises before God and say, but make sure that when you make a promise before God that you mean it with your whole heart and your desire is to fulfill it. While, while much of the, the world views breaking a promise or an oath or a vow as a standard business practice, uh, a form of political maneuvering, the word vow or promise has come to mean I'll give it my best shot. God's desire that, that we as Christians, it should not be that way. Our word should be our bond. If we promise somebody something, I used to say to people when I make appointments, and not that I was all, sometimes things came up, but I'd say if I'm not there, I must be dead. Because when I tell you I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. And I'll tell you what, when you do follow through, when you make those commitments, it is a testimony. All our promises to make are made before God, and to ignore those promises is nothing short of sin. Let me give you some other examples before we move on. If you've signed a contract, you know what you've done? You've made a vow or a promise, haven't you? And I'll never forget people that, even Christians that I knew, that would try to shake their way out of a contract because things got iffy. I remember my next-door neighbor down in Southern California, the, the, the housing market, we bought at the peak. I tend to do that. Buy high, sell low. That's not what you're supposed to do, but I tend to do that. All right? God just wants me not to be burdened with money. Right? So I buy a house at the, at the peak of the market, and then Northrop and Lockheed, which is where everybody in Lancaster works, you know, basically shut down and fired everybody, so every third house was empty. So guess what in the market? Right? So my next-door neighbor goes, hey, man, there's this great program out. Here's what you do. You don't pay your rent for a couple of years. There's ways to finagle where you don't have to pay your mortgage payment. You take all the money from your mortgage and you put it in the bank. And then right before you, you have to file bankruptcy, you run out and you buy another house because now they're half the price. You can pay cash for it and you get out of the one that over here where you're upside down. So now you've got a house debt-free that's worth more money. You pay half as much and you don't have this debt anymore over your head. It's really a great program. And I'm like... Great for you. How's the bank feeling about that program, right? Well, the bank's got plenty of money, but did you sign the mortgage when you bought the house? Is that a testimony? Are we to have a good testimony before the bank? Yes, we are. I believe as Christians that when we sign a contract, we fulfill it. That's a vow. That's a promise. I promise you I'm going to do this, and I need to do it even if it's to my own harm. Maybe you're a contractor here and things go sideways on a job. You know what? Fulfill it even if it costs you money because that's what God would want you to do. Will that be a testimony to the world? Contractors don't do that for the most part, right? Some don't. Now, some are, are, are godly and do, but most don't. And God desires that we be men and women who, when we give, us, give our word, that we fulfill it. Once you've given your word, don't, cha- don't change your mind. God commands His children as they prepare to enter in to be people who are faithful to the word. He knew that when they entered the promised land, things were going to get tough. And he said, I want you to be obedient to the Word. Verses 3-5. through five. Now we're going to move on from that to looking at a, at a picture of submission now and a father's headship over his daughter. 
how he's accountable both to lead and to protect her. And again, this is near and dear to my heart. It says, now if a woman makes a vow, okay, a promise. A woman makes a promise, a vow before God, and says, I promise, Lord, to do this. Whatever kind of vow that it might be. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. Now, a father has headship over his children, and the young woman here is, is speaking of a girl under the age of 13. So an 11, a 12-year-old girl makes a vow before God, and her father hears this vow or this commitment that she's made, and obviously it's something that would be probably impossible for an 11-year-old to fulfill. Now dad has a choice to make. He can either just let it go, hold his peace, or he can step up and be dad and be the spiritual leader in his home. And what can he do? He can take the place and remove the vow. Look what it says in verse 5. But if the father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled it. I want you to see something significant here, though. This young woman makes a voluntary vow, and her dad is there, and he hears what she says, and look what it says here in verse 4. Her father hears her vow, and the agreement which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace. He doesn't say anything. You know what? Sometimes the easiest thing to do as a parent is nothing. But it's rarely the right thing to do. Amen? Often the easiest thing to do would be to let your teenager go. Well, you know, I don't want to fight this battle. Just let it go. Right? Well, they got themselves into some trouble. Let's just let them work their way out of it. And this father could just simply hold his peace. He wouldn't be bound in any way. He could just let her deal with it herself, and he could let it go. A father who does not take a proactive role in raising his children, in leading them spiritually, and setting a standard for life as one who would simply just let it go. Can I tell you something, guys? God has called you, again, to be the spiritual leader in your home. And God has called you to be a Christ-like example to your kids. And God has called you to be the number one place where your kids are fed. It shouldn't be the Sunday school teacher or Pastor Dave or even the teacher at the Christian school. It should be you. This should be gravy on Sunday and Wednesday. And we need to take proactive roles in our kids' lives. Don't be so busy reading the paper that you hold your peace when your kids are in trouble. This, this child, in a sense, is, makes a vow. It's overwhelming. There's no way they can fulfill it. It's only going to bring them harm. And this father can just hold his peace and let it go. Is that what God would have them to do? I believe absolutely not. Consenting to whatever lifestyle they choose to live. Leaving her to her vows and the consequence that would go with it. That's not what God wants us to do. I told my daughter, and you know she's not here so I can embarrass her a little bit, but I told her when she started high school. Now I was a youth pastor a long time, so I know what comes with teenage years. I'm not shocked, I knew it was coming, alright? And I told my daughter, I remember driving her in my car, and I looked at her and I said, Ashley, your dad loves you enough to have you be mad at me for the next four years, if that's what it takes, to raise you in a godly way. And you know what? Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes my daughter's not real happy with me. Because I say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve. Not that she wants to go off and do something out of control, 
But those of you who know me, I have pretty specific rules for my kids. And most specifically when it comes to dating, I don't believe in dating. I don't believe it's in the Bible anywhere. I don't believe it's scriptural. I believe in courtship to marriage. When you're 15, you ain't getting married anytime soon. You don't need to be dating anybody. All right? You get nominated for Homecoming Princess, you don't go because you have to have a date. Oh, Pastor Dave, that's harsh. Oh, yeah, it is. But you know what? My daughter's precious, and I'm not going to sit back and hold my peace. I'm going to love her. And I'm going to be the spiritual leader that God's called me to be. And when I walk her down the aisle one day, and I take her hand out of my hand, and I put her hand in her husband's hand, that's when I let go of headship in her life, but not until. And what he's talking about here is he can, sit, he can sit there and hold his peace and just let her deal with it herself, let her undertake the vow, or he can step up and be her dad and say, you know what, sweetheart, that's not going to work. And I'm going to overrule that vow you just took, and no, that's not what we're going to do. You know, I, I, when I was a youth pastor, I used to have parents come and tell me quite frequently that their kids don't come to church because they don't want to. And their kids are 14 and 15. And I'd say, since when do 15-year-olds live in a democratic house? They don't in my house. My kids don't vote on whether or not they're going to school. You know, do your kid, we know what that vote would be. Nobody would be going to school, right? And the reality is, if, I used to say to them, now, if, you're, if your kid doesn't want to go to math class, do you make them go? Oh, yeah, make them go to math. Okay. You make them go to math to learn algebra, but you don't make them go to the place where they're going to learn about eternal life, the place where they're going to learn about Jesus Christ and His love, the place where they're going, they can come to a saving knowledge of their, save, of, the, of their Lord and Savior, that's up for grabs. Well, they like to go surfing instead. They like to go to the beach instead. They, like to, they want to sit and watch football and TV instead. And, you know, he's 15. I want him to make his own decisions. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As soon as one of my kids says they want to watch football instead of going to church, they can do it as long as they take their bags and get out of my house. Right? I mean, I love my kids, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And we can sit and hold our peace and try not to rock the boat and read the paper and ignore what's going on with the kids, or we can be the spiritual leader that says, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to honor God around here. Amen? That's what God desires. And so we see here that this is what a dad should do, but the father overrules her on that day. When he hears, and then none of her vows or her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father has overruled her. It's okay for a dad to overrule his teenager. Amen? It's okay. It's right here. He overruled her. No, we're not doing that. I made a vow. I don't, no, you don't get to make vows. You're 13. Okay? I make vows for you. You do what God has me tell you you need to do. All right? Now, we see here, the, again, the spiritual headship of a father, but I want you to notice something, that as a parent, not only do we have the authority, but with the authority comes accountability. We have the authority given by God, but always when God gives authority, God gives accountability. If you have any kind of authority in ministry, there is accountability that goes with it. If you have authority over your children, you will be accountable for the way that you raise them. If you have authority in your job, you will be accountable before God for the way you use that authority. And so there's authority that this father has, but he will be accountable before, for the way that he uses it in dealing with his daughter. God made you a parent for a reason. Your children, as I used to say all the time, your children have enough friends, they need a dad and a mom. 
Amen? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm very close to my kids. Any of you know me and my kids? I'm hugging on them. I'm loving on them. I'm hanging out with them. I love to spend time with my kids. But you know what? they got enough friends. I'm their dad. And I love them, but I'm their dad. I'm not just a friend that they have. And a lot of parents say, well, I just want to be, a, I want to be their friend. Well, that's fine, but be their dad, too. Be their mom, too. Raise them, lead them, minister to your children the ways of the Lord. Doing what is right and godly with your children means often it won't be popular with them. Some of you parents have probably heard your kids say, I hate you. You might have heard that. That doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. Amen? Because you know what? There's times when God does stuff that we don't like. But He does it because He loves us. So we see here the headship of a father over his child. God has called him to be the spiritual leader. God has called him to be the one to step up and take the place for his daughter and overrule when this young woman is taking a vow that is too much for her to handle. Now let's take a look at husbands and wives. If indeed she takes a husband, this is talking about a woman, while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips, by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day he hears, then her vows shall stand, her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. Husbands have headship over their wives. That's not real popular in the world today. People don't like that. We're in the women's live generation. By the way, every nation where God is glorified and lifted up, women are liberated. And every nation where God is suppressed, where Islam is in charge, or some other ism, women are oppressed big time. Take a look around the world, where Christianity, where Christ is magnified, that's where women have the greatest liberty and the greatest freedom. And you look at countries where Christ is suppressed, and that's where women have the greatest amount of oppression. So our God is a God who loves women and liberates women. Amen? Now, what we see here, though, is that God has a divine plan for the home. Just as the father has headship over the children, so too he has headship or authority over his wife. But with that authority comes accountability. And it says here, if the wife, now this isn't typifying all women, but it says here if she makes a rash vow. Now let's just do it, right? And her husband comes along and hears and says, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. It says here he can do one of two things. He can ignore it. Oh, well, she's going to eat her oats. Hope it works out for her. Or he can be a husband who esteems his wife greater than himself and is willing to step up and overrule it. Because look what it says there in verse 8. But if her husband overrules her on that day and hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took, what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. So he can sit and respond in silence and act like, all right, fine, go for it. By the way, in the text here, silence is equal to consent. If you say nothing, you're saying it's okay. If you say nothing to your kids, you're saying it's okay. If you say nothing in your home about what's going on in your home, you're saying it's okay. If your kids are listening to music they shouldn't be and you're not saying anything about it, you're saying it's okay. If your kids are hanging out with people they shouldn't be hanging out with and you're not saying anything about it, you're saying it's okay. And if your TV's got stuff on that shouldn't be on there and you're letting them watch it, you're saying it's okay. And we see here that silence is equal to consent. And this man could say nothing or he could step up and say, hey, God's called me to be the spiritual leader in my home and I need to minister to my wife. A young woman's 
headship is her father, and a married, woman, married woman's headship is her husband. Now, God created man to be the head of the woman, to be the spiritual leader. But I want to say this. I've done enough marriage counseling to know this is true, and if any woman disagrees with this, you can come and talk to me afterward. Our godly wives would love nothing more than for us to take the spiritual lead and initiative in our homes. Our wives would love it. They're not going to fight against it. They're going to be stoked that we've done it. Amen, women? It's so true. I talk to women, they say, man, if my husband would just pray with me, if my husband would just open up the Bible and spend time in the Word with me, if my husband would just take initiative, I'll stand right there with him and I'll say amen and go, amen, with the kids. And I want my husband to do that. They don't want to be the head because God didn't create them that way. They want a husband who'll do it. Guys, let's not say it's our wives' fault that we're not taking the lead because it's not our wives' fault, it's our fault. Can I encourage you to start initiating prayer time in your house? If it's got to start at the dinner table, then start there. But start praying with your family. Start devotions with your family. Be the primary uh, source for feeding your family. A husband has a right and a calling to intervene on behalf of his wife. God's called us that when we see our wives going through difficulty, to step up and be willing to say, that's not what we need to do. We need to do something different. I've heard from the Lord. You know what's easy to submit to someone who's in love with God? Isn't it easy to submit to the Lord? Because He's submitted to the Father and He's perfect, holy God. I don't even have to think twice about submitting to the Lord, do you? And you know what? I believe that guys, when we're so in love with God, it's very easy for our wives to submit to us. It's when we walk in the house with the iron fist and say, you know, sit down, shut up, and submit, woman. That doesn't work out too well. That doesn't go over real big, right? But if you are a man who agape loves your wife, that means esteems are greater than yourself, and you're praying for her throughout the day, and you're saying, Lord, how can I serve her? How can I love her? How can I minister to her? And you come home having prayed and sought the Lord, and you say, babe, can, let's spend some time praying together tonight. I have an idea our wives are going to be stoked. Amen? They're going to be, oh man, yeah. Some, I, I'll tell you, I have women come up to me and say, you know what, it's so awesome, my husband's taking spiritual headship in our house. After all, I've been praying for this for years. And since we started coming to this church and he's been taught the Bible, he's coming home and he's praying with us. And they're excited, they're jumping out of their skin. If you're not doing that, guys, can I encourage you to do it? I promise you, your wife will be blessed. She won't be bummed. God has called us to be the spiritual leaders. God has called us to take an effort. And you know what? I want to encourage you, and I have to confess openly with, with four kids, I'm not good at this. But we need more one-on-one time with our wives too. Because a lot of times, you know, career, kids, hobbies can all get in the way of intimacy in our marriage, one-on-one time with our spouses. So this husband overrules her. He gets up and she's got a heart to do something. He says, you know what, babe, I've heard from the Lord. We're not going to do that. But again, if you're a man who's submitted to God, a man who seeks God's face, your wife's going to say, okay. I don't always agree, but I know my husband prays. I can think of no greater compliment my wife's ever given me than when I made a decision like that. And I knew she wasn't thrilled about it, but all she said was, well, I know you pray. I know you sought the Lord, so that's what we need to do. I thought, wow. But... I'm not always that way. I blow it sometimes. That's my wife, okay? 
Sometimes I do things in the flesh. But the reality is, if we do it seeking the Lord, when we step up and we overrule our wife, because we know this is not what God wants us to do. We know this was a rash thing that was spoken in, in quickness. And we say, you know what, babe? I've prayed and I just don't think this is what God wants us to do. Here's what we need to do instead. I believe our wives will be blessed. And they'll be strengthened to know that their husband prays and seeks God's face and has a heart for him. Verse 9. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. And I find this interesting. And I, again, you know, sometimes I tell you, hey, this is just something to think about. Here's something to think about. I find it interesting that the one that the vow stands against is the woman who is not under headship to a groom. In the Bible, we are called the what? The bride of Christ. And isn't it interesting that the one who the vow remains upon them, the burden remains upon them, the one who still has to fulfill it and do the work is the one who is not attached to the groom. But the ones who are attached to the groom, the vow has been removed from them and the vow has been placed upon the groom. Isn't that what happened with all of us as the bride of Christ? He came and took away the burden from us and He took it for us and He hung on the cross in our place. And I don't think it's by chance that the one person that has it upon them is the one who again is in no way linked to the groom. A spiritual type, again, that we are the bride of Christ and Jesus is our advocate and He intercedes for us and He's our covering. And if we're not a part of the bride, we have no covering. You know what, if you're here tonight by chance and you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, right now the burden for your sin is on you. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I'll take it. Give it to me. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And He died for you because He loves you. And I love the fact that not only am I, am I His son, but I'm a part of His bride. And I'm looking forward to the wedding day. Amen? I'm looking forward we will enter into His presence and we will dwell with Him forevermore. And so we see here that the only one that the vow remains heavy upon is the one who is in no ways attached to the groom. Verse 10. And lastly here we're going to see the husband's accountability to fulfill his wife's vow. You know what, guys? We are accountable. We're accountable to take the burdens from our wife as well. We're accountable to be faithful to minister to, to those things. We're almost done here. She vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule it. Then all the vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. So a married woman takes an oath. Her husband doesn't respond. The vow sticks. He doesn't step up. He doesn't overrule her. Now that vow is coming to the house. And guess what? He's going to be accountable just as she's accountable. The Bible says when we're married, we become one flesh. My wife's problems are my problems. My wife's debts are my debts. My wife's struggles are my struggles. When I do weddings, I talk about the fact that in marriage, our joys can be doubled and our burdens can be halved. Because we carry the burdens together and we share the joys together. Amen? And it breaks my heart when I see families where the husband and wife are on two separate pages. they got separate checking accounts and separate lives and separate everything. And I want to encourage you, put it all together because everything, every, my wife's debts are mine. My wife's problems are my problems. My problems are hers. 
And we're accountable because we're married and we're one flesh. Verse 13. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul. Her husband may confirm it, her husband may make it void. Afflict her soul is an oath to fast. And the husband can allow her to continue on in a fast or he can make it void out of concern for her physical health. You know, there's times when our, our wives or our children want to do things that may even appear godly on the outside, but we have to use wisdom in, in instructing them because God's called us to be the spiritual leader in our home. Verse 14. Now, if her husband makes no response, whatever, to do from that day to day, then he confirms all her vows, all her agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on that day that he heard them. So, the day he hears her, her vows, he needs to respond. And guys, this is where we totally blow it. At least I know I do. If my wife ever gets most frustrated with me about anything, it's that I don't always listen. Am I the only guy that gets ever get gets accused of that, right? I must be. That's me. I'm the only one. All you guys listen really well. I just don't, right? But the reality is a lot of times as guys, we just, you know, what? Huh? Is that in your vocabulary too? Is that just me, right? And the reality is we're just folk, we're thinking about something else. We're all linear. I'm just thinking over here. My wife's talking to me about it. And are you listening? Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you uh, said something, right? <laughs> Well, here we see that this woman brings a vow and he doesn't respond immediately. He's napping at the switch. And so now, guess what? Because he was not attentive to his wife, the accountability for the vow that she has made rolls down on him too. Because he wasn't attentive to her needs, because he wasn't ministering to her heart, because he wasn't being the spiritual leader, because he wasn't listening faithfully to her, and he wasn't seeking to to bless her, now, because he didn't, and she had to go off and do it on her own, outside of her husband's uh, concern, now the accountability is going to roll on him too. It says in verse 15, but if he does not make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. That means that if I do not minister to my wife, if I do not bear the burden with her, that ultimately, if I'm not attentive and if I'm not ministering to her and I'm not being the spiritual leader, that ultimately it's going to all end up with me. I'm going to be the one that's going to have to deal with it because I was not obedient to God. With authority comes accountability. If as the spiritual leader in the home, I'm accountable. And it says here in that text, if he does not make them void, if he doesn't step up and say when she says, I want to make this pledge, and he doesn't step up and say, no, I've prayed about it. That's, we're not going to do that. If he just lets it go, he remains silent. He's too busy, busy reading the sports page or watching ESPN, Right? She signs up for the Book of the Month Club or something like that. Guess what? Guess who's getting the bill? Right? Amen? The reality is that we need to be attentive. Guys, God has given you authority in your home. You're going to be accountable for what you do with that time. The groom bears her guilt and pays the penalty that was due her. When God declares someone to be in a position of rightful authority, and others are expected to submit to that authority, the head is also accountable to God for the result. God never grants authority without accountability. When we understand that, it makes it a lot easier to submit to people. Can I tell you something? That my daily prayer is I understand that when I stand before God, I will stand before God first as a husband, then as a father, then as the pastor of this church. And everything that I've taught you, I'm accountable for. Every decision we make, 
I'm accountable for. And I don't take that lightly. It drives me to my knees and I spend a lot of time in prayer. Because I want to know that I've heard from God and I'm not doing what, God, what I want to do, but what God is telling us we need to do. Guys, again, God has given you authority in your home. You'll be accountable for what you do with it. Mom and dad, God has given you authority over your children. You're going to be accountable for them. Don't be afraid to be mom and dad. And then last verse, verse 16. These are statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. A statute is another word basically for a law. He's saying these are the laws concerning husbands and wives and fathers and daughters. So in review, God has commanded us to be faithful to our word, to let our yes be yes, let our no be no. May we think twice before we say I promise. May we think again before we say yes, I'll do it. When you take a job and you, and you know what the hours are, you show up on time. We should be the hardest workers in the building. Amen? Our boss should say, I want 25 more just like him. I want 25 more just like her. Because we are doing our job as unto the Lord. We need to be faithful in a faithless world. With authority comes accountability. Dads, God's called you to be the spiritual leader in your home. Go home and start praying with your family. If you can't pray with them yet because it's hard for you, start praying for them first. And pray that God will give you the boldness to pray with them. Amen? And wives, if your husband is struggling and maybe he's new in his faith and it's hard for him and he comes to you and wants to pray with you, you support him a thousand percent. Amen? Absolutely. Don't expect him to be perfect in his verbiage when he prays. Just look at his heart and realize he wants to be what God has called him to be, the spiritual leader in your home. And then lastly, may we also be those who are accountable for how we raise our kids. We need to lead them. We need to protect them. We need not to let the world raise our children. We need not to let them just go with the flow and be like the world. Amen? The world is trying to raise our children. God wants us to step up and say, no, we're not doing that. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to honor Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you give us and the callings you place upon our lives. But, Lord, with the authority, there's accountability. Help us, Lord, to be first for the guys. I pray for each guy who's here, those who are married and those who are going to be married one day. Lord, I pray there just be preparation in their hearts. Lord, for the, for the single guys, I pray that they would just begin every day to get up in the morning and pray. And, Lord, that when they are married one day, that that... that uh, discipline would just carry over into their marriage and they would just add their wife to it lord for those of us who are married help us to be faithful to pray for our wives and our kids and to pray with our wives and our kids and to be a christ-like example at home lord we're going to be accountable for what we've done with this first ministry lord may we be found faithful for the moms and dads who are here help us lord to be faithful in raising our kids in a godly home Help us, Lord, to pray for them, to lay down our lives for them. And Lord, when it's difficult, not to compromise, just to be popular with our children, but be faithful to you. Love them enough to say no sometimes. Lord, I pray also that you'd help us to be men and women, that our yes would be yes and our no would be no. Even if the world around us is faithless, may we be found faithful. Lord, we love you. We praise you. You're a great and an awesome God. Without you, we can do nothing. So we cry out in desperation for you, that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.
Amen. Let's stand and close our worship song.